Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good morning. Welcome to the War Room. I'm your host, Bill Evans. Uh, today I'm in the home of Brian and Elaine Abshire in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, some of you may recall who attended the uh, little summit down in Centerville that Brian uh, was unable to join us um, because of um, uh, Elaine had a, 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 a bout with pneumonia and we needed to get her well before they could do anything like that. So I thought that I would uh, give you a treat and visit with Brian here so you could hear what he has to say. After all, Brian, welcome to the War Room. Thanks, Bill, and great to have you here. It's always good to hang out with you. Well, I met Brian about a year or so ago, it seems longer, uh, through some of his writings. And uh, I didn't know at the time that Brian goes way back uh, and was an associate of Rush Dooney, wrote for Calcedon, mm-hmm. Calcedon, yeah. I always want to say Cal, maybe it's a southern thing, I don't know, uh, but, um, and, and I read some of his, his work, and that was being um, used in, uh, by a, a, a buddy of mine in his discipleship training, and said, if I could write like anybody, I would want to write like Brian Abshire. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to meet him. And because I travel, I got a chance to visit them. And uh, Brian, you're the pastor at uh, uh, Covenant Reform Presbyterian Church. That's right. In Evansville. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, we were just talking a little bit about uh, how you came to faith in Christ and, and the, the people whom God used. And perhaps that has a good deal to do with your ministry style personable and one-on-one and, and I mean you, you do you do good work up close uh, so why don't you tell us a bit about your 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 your, your who you are and your uh, your history and just let you just tell your story and then we'll have uh, questions develop organically and I'll just chime in from time to time well, asking a pastor pardon me, to talk about himself is kind of like, you know, waving a bag of heroin underneath an addict's nose. You know, he's going to go on for hours on this. But actually, the question that you're asking is the ministry that we have, I think, is organically derived from the life experiences that God providentially brings you through. I grew up in rural Maine uh, during the 1950s and 1960s, where most people had some nominal association with the church. And I grew up in a small town of 84 people. It's not even a town, it's a village. And the church had been shut down for a few years, for a number of years, and they opened it back up again. And there was like about four families that were involved in that church, tiny. But I heard the gospel for the first time at about six years of age, and I thought, this is wonderful. This is marvelous. This is, this is great. And I did the best I could, you know, with my King James Bible at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old to do the things that people told me that I should do. And 
And what I quickly realized, though, is that there was a real big difference between what the preacher said on Sunday morning. Remember, this is the old school where we went Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday evening. You know, and my family was involved in every single aspect of the church. But the problem is, is that what you did after the last hymn was sung and the books were closed and you walked out the door was completely different than what happened within. So basically, Christians were operational schizophrenics. They acted one way in church and another way in real life. Well, by the time that I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I basically said, this is a nice fantasy. This is like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or something else. It's not true. It would be nice if it was true, but it's not. And then, and I also, let's be honest about it, I probably use that as a defense because when I hit 12, 13, 14 years old, you start going through some major life changes and there are certain sins and then certain temptations that are available as a teenager that you wouldn't even consider, you know, as a child. And so basically, and this has become a major theme of my ministry, is that I don't think man is a rational animal. I don't think men use their brains to arrive at truth. I think because of corruption and because of total depravity, I think men tend to use their thinking to justify and rationalize and excuse their behavior. And I certainly did that myself. And so in my teenage years, this is the late 1960s, Um, You know, I was as rebellious and as wicked as I could be within the limits of my personality and, you know, gifts and abilities and that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, I grew my hair long and wore bell-bottom jeans and fringe leather vests. Um, You know, I I like to say I carried a sign in 69, not because I was a political revolutionary. No, but that's because that's where all the girls with loose morals hang out. So basically, let me, you know, let me do whatever I need to do in order to, you know, fulfill these particular desires. But through those particular years, I listened to the music. And that music in that era, I think, is different than modern day music. The music was trying to find meaning and purpose. There was the war. There was the culture that was degenerating. Music was attempting to find some sense of meaning or purpose. At the same time, I was reading the kind of books that you know, uh, young, young people were reading in those particular days. You know, we had basically rejected Western Christian morality. So what we're going to replace it with? And so I experimented in terms of looking at Eastern existential monism, you know, all, all you know, existentialism, all the kinds of things that were available, and they left a sad and empty taste in my mouth. And then in 1972, I committed the most heinous act that could be done by someone of my generation. I cut my hair and I joined the military. And the reason I joined the military, and I felt like a hypocrite doing so, is that I was 18, I had no future, I came from a poor working class background, my family had broken up, Uh, all my friends were going off to college, but I couldn't afford to go to college. I mean, certainly there were no grants in those days for, you know, young poor boys from rural Maine. And the only way you were going to get a, a college education, which was the magic ticket into the middle class, was by joining the military, doing your time, having you know discussions with pragmatic Marxists in Southeast Asia. And if you survived the experience, you got your four-year college. I thought it's a great deal. And since I'm not an entire fool, I didn't join the Army or the Marines because they tend to get into really pragmatic discussions with Marxists in Southeast Asia. I joined the Air Force. 
And I thought the Air Force, if nothing else, would give me a skill set that I could then parlay into whatever I wanted to do down the road. Because everyone knows that the Air Force is full of brilliant technicians, right? And, and I thought that they would recognize my rare ability quickly. And turns out that I wasn't that smart and I wasn't that talented. And they gave me the dumbest job known to mankind. In fact, if you had an IQ slightly above room temperature, you were qualified to do my job. First three Air Force bases I was on, the only airplane on the entire base was the one mounted on a pedestal in front of wing headquarters because they were not active duty, you know, military bases. Horrible experience. But God used that in his providence. With all these things I've been through before, nothing seemed to happen. Christianity had been rejected because nobody could make it work. All of the other philosophies, Darwinism, materialism, humanism, are dead, empty. There's no meaning and there's no purpose. You know, you were a piece of slime that, you know, three and a half billion years ago crawled out of some, you know, uh, you know particular ooze, you know, right? And then over time and random chance of mutation, you become a thinking being. But if that's true, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no morality, there's no future, there's no hope. You're just a cosmic speck here today and gone tomorrow. That's nihilism to the extreme. And I was just smart enough to recognize the futility of human existence but not smart enough to be able to do anything about it. And that's where God found me, and that's where he sent some men into my life that shared the gospel. And now, remember, I had grown up in a, I won't say a Christian home, but at least a church-going home. Where, but So at first, I mean, I remember the guys, you know, the first time I met these Christians, Bill, it was funny, because I first day I was a new job, and this guy, you know, and I, you know, I was in the Air Force, and this guy came and said, hey, you want to go to chow with me? And I went, okay, what's, who is this guy? Why is he being so friendly? Is he a homosexual? I mean, you know, because why are men being friendly to me? And we went to chow with this guy, and there was like three or four guys sitting around a table, and there was this one guy said, he's from Kentucky, and he says, my life has changed so much since Jesus came into it. And I started roaring with laughter because I thought he was doing a Gomer Pyle impersonation. I don't know if people now even know who Gomer Pyle was, but, you know, and everyone looked at me and they said, don't you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Now, remember, I'm 19 years old. I'm, you know, bitter. I'm worn out. I'm I'm blasphemous, you know, I have no reverence for anything. I said, no, I, I think Jesus was probably the illegitimate offspring of a space traveler on shore leave, you know, <laughs> thinking I'm being really cute. And these guys looked at me like, you know, not like I was a, a horrible person, but they looked at me with sympathy and they shared the gospel. Now, I had heard the gospel before. Furthermore, because I had read a few books, you know, I used all the standard arguments that atheists and, you know, God-haters use against Christianity. These guys, honestly, they couldn't answer them. <laughs> they really couldn't because they're good men, but I don't think they'd really done a lot of reading or thinking. Of them. But the reality is, and the thing that really changed me, the thing that God used to reach through and grab me by the throat and put me up against the wall was that they, their lives were changed their lives were different. And I can't go into too much detail because there's a lot of some security issues here, but the base that I was at at that particular point was a very high security area. And a lot of us, basically, we had to wait for up to six months before we could actually do our job because we had to go through a security process. 
And in that security process, they, you know, the final thing, they, you had to do a background investigation, then you had an interview, and the final interview was really important because they would go through, have, you know, a list of questions. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Have you ever taken drugs? Have you ever, and basically, unless you were a security threat, they would do this. They, and you, you can't see this on the radio, of course, but they, have you ever done drugs? And, that, and while the guy is asking the question, he's going, He's shaking his head back and forth and mouthing the word no, because in 1972, 1973, everyone was doing drugs and everyone knew it. So there were two air forces, two militaries, the one on paper and then the way it really ran. And there's a whole bunch of questions that they asked you. And basically, if they hadn't discovered something bad about you to disqualify you at this point, you were in. And this was just a formality. But one day, one of the guys in this group of individuals sitting around saying, guys, I need you to pray for me because my, my exam, my interview is coming up right now. And uh, <clears throat> they're going to ask me these questions. And as a Christian, I cannot lie. And I went, you're joking. Of course you lie. Everyone lies. That's the accepted standard. And he says, no, lying is contrary to God's will. And I need God you know, to provide And this guy did not have a stupid job like I did. He had a very important job that was uh, took a lot of training. I think his tech school was like a year-long kind of stuff. It was really important. But he wouldn't lie because he was a Christian. And so the, everyone prayed for him there, and I just kind of sat there and, okay, all right. Interesting to see if God's going to answer that particular question because he's going to tell the truth, and let's see if God gets him out of it. And a few days later, he came back and said, well, I had my interview. I'm out of the Air Force in a few weeks' time. And I went, your God just just messed you over, dude. I mean, you just, you know, you prayed to him, and he says, yeah, but God's in control. God's sovereign. If God doesn't want me here, that's his will. But I had to do what he calls me to do, what he told me to do. I had to tell the truth. I had never before in my life met a Christian who would actually be willing to lose his life's work because of a principle, because he would stick to what his word said. I knew Christians who were Christians by convenience because it, it, it massaged their personalities, because it gave them comfort when the nights were dark and the noises were scary outside. I knew Christians that had just brought up, you know, been brought up with certain values. But these were, they were, all these people would be willing to compromise their faith at a drop of a moment, at a drop of a hat, if it's basically facilitated their long-term goals. These guys didn't. They were willing to sacrifice for what it meant to be a Christian. And I had to realize there was nothing in my life that I would sacrifice for. I mean, there's nothing that was meaningful. And I, you know, within a few days of that particular event, I remember kneeling in my bunk in my barracks room and probably the most reluctant convert in, you know, in, in, you know, in the world at that particular point saying, Lord, um, I, I, I want what they have. I want this this kind of different life that, that you've promised. I want to be changed from the, I want to have something that I believe in so much that I'd be willing to be stood up against the wall and shot if necessary. And I don't know how to get that. And you know, Jesus, if you're real, notice that, if you're real and if you can hear me, change my heart. And I, he did. And basically he completely transformed me from the inside out. Now, eventually, all those guys, because we were in a base, they, you know, they ended up getting different ways. And, you know, I filled out my paperwork, and I volunteered to go to Vietnam, because Vietnam was, the war had technically come over, but we still had troops there. You know, Thailand, Japan, exotic places, Crete, all those kind of interesting places. And at the very bottom of my list, I put England, because I had a blank space. And 
like a couple of months later, I got a thing, notification from the personnel office. Congratulations, Brian. You've got your, your selection. You're going to England. And at that point, my thought of England was old Sherlock Holmes movies made in the 40s. You know, you know, foggy, wet, you know, cold. I had no concept of what modern England was like, and I didn't want to do that at all. But it was through going to England that I actually met a group of Christians that actually took this fundamental precept that, that the Christian life is not about some religious experience that you have, but it's about total life transformation, a life lived in submission to Almighty God and what that meant. Now, none of them were very well-educated theologically. None of them were very doctrinally sound. In fact, I kept running into Calvinists, and basically the only conclusion I could come to is that Calvinists are suffering from some sort of brain disorder. They're obnoxious personality disorder, OPD, because they were mean, they were nasty, they were critical. Now, today, I would look back and say, yeah, their theology was obviously a thousand times better than mine at the time, but they were more concerned about changing my theology and correcting me and showing me the superiority of their wisdom and their intelligence than they were actually ministering to me. They didn't care to invite me into their home, to become a part of my life, to help me work through my problems. They just wanted to slam me down. But the guys I met in England, and I, again, I was working with, beginning with like a navigator-type ministry, even though we didn't have any nav reps there. But, you know, we did basic things. We went out in the barracks. We knocked on doors. We, you know, shared the gospel with guys. Um, those that were interested, we basically, you know, you know, took them through Bible studies. We had a Friday evening fellowship that was led by a senior master sergeant who basically had, was like the father that I, you know, never really had, the guy that really stamped his, his imperator on me in terms of what it means to be a Christian. And basically, Dave, this guy's name is Dave Ames, would say, it's not about what you know, it's about what you do. Can you make it work in your life? Can you deal with your bosses? Can you deal with your problems? Can you deal you know, with your, your conflicts and that kind of stuff? And I, I really appreciated the wisdom. And to me, that was real biblical Christianity. It is about how to bring every area of life in the submission to King Jesus. When I came back from the States, finally finished my time in the Air Force, went to college, went to seminary, I thought, what happened? Because what I'm seeing out here in modern-day American Christianity, this, this, this is the stuff that I rejected when I was 12 years old. This is the business-as-usual religious stuff. This is, this is a, you, know, you know, I used to call it country club Christianity. You know, the country club's a nice place to go. You meet the right sort of people. It's a good environment for the kids. But, you know, basically that's all it is. You, you go to the country club on the weekends. You do your thing, but you live your life somewhere else. And that's the way that most Christians acted. You know, the reason I, I ordinarily, this has been the longest run of me not ever chiming in, uh, I think probably in war room history, because number one, I really like you, and I wanted, I really wanted to hear your story, and secondly, I was amazed at just how many points they were similar to mine. And at this point, I would just echo what you're saying that, you know, I was on my ship, I was the duty Christian, the Christian on board, and um, lay leader, and, and and people pretty much, we were doing the work of of evangelists, and we were trying to apply life support to the, the people that were uh, claiming to, to come to faith in Christ and then teaching them basic spiritual pediatrics. And, um, and by the time I'd gotten out of the Navy, 
Our only use for a chapel was to go as a fishing hole. Exactly. <laughs> we went to the base chapel because if, if God was pulling anybody's heart strings, yeah. they would probably end up there, and we would go there, and they were certain not to hear the gospel or right. anything that sounded yeah. like it from the uh, from the military chaplain. We would be there to grab a hold of them and ask them to come out for lunch or to join us for soccer and and and. Yep. And then, or to find out a little bit about how we could contact them, what unit they were with, or whatever. And when I got out of the military, I had real—I'm um, trying to think of the right word—but uh, but but I had a very low view of the tr- the quote unquote mm-hmm. the church, the ecclesia, um, because I thought, well, if. The church, and because we were told over and over again, well, you're not. We're not the church. We're we're a parachurch, you know. And I said, well, if if we're doing the work of the church, and the church is not doing the work of the church, why don't we just why don't we just kick them to the curb and we'll just call ourselves the church? I mean, I yeah, you some because that was it. And 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 my first exposure, of course, I got a little. I got exposed to Reformed theology, Calvinism first. I didn't know anything about really eschatology. I, you know, but um, I picked up a track by Dwayne Spencer, uh, the five points of Calvinism in light of scripture, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, a, it, it, but I thought, this is great. We're gonna, and it had been thrown away by my roommate who said, <laughs> I, yeah, it's, you know, he was an Armenian, a Pentecostal, yeah. and, and he, he threw it, and I picked it up. And my first exposure to a church at all was um, when I had to pick a church. As a, as a young Christian went to Bible college, that was one of the requirements. You had to join a local church. And uh, they just left me pretty flat. Hmm. Yet, but there was one, because I, I, I had started reading Reformed uh, reform Men, and I, and I went to a Presbyterian church where they, a guy wore a Geneva gown and preached from a tall pub, but I didn't know at the time he was post-millennial. Yeah. But I thought he reminded me of Spur- his his sermon reminded me of, well, I'd read some Sword and Trowel, mm-hmm. and I thought he's preaching up God and he's preaching down man, so I joined. I didn't know anything about Presbyterianism, anything about the church or covenantal theology. I just, I was a Calvinist basically. Right. But so, but we had very similar experiences, but correct me if I'm wrong, but but your experiences of relating to people and the the passion these men had for building relationships and they took a personal interest in your spiritual development and whether you know bible studies it was and it was and and they were steps i mean they were you know you were like okay on tuesdays we do evangelism on thursdays we have bible studies on saturdays we have soccer on sundays we meet at the base chapel for more evangelism then we're going to get together and have lunch or and, and it was, you know, if I was in port, those were the things that I, you know, exactly. I, I did. And if you were, really showed promise as a young Christian, they asked you to join a key man's group. Yes, yes, I remember. <laughs> yep. And that's when you got into more of the inductive Bible studies. Mm-hmm. You weren't just doing the, the little... Design for discipleship. Design for yeah. discipleship. Uh, you were doing the inductive Bible studies. And my first post-millennial moment, I think, was... We were asking, we're studying Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and they said, now this verse contains, that's the Great Commission, by the way, for, uh, but it said, now this verse contains a promise, 
and it contains a challenge. Can you identify? Everybody says, well, the challenge is to make disciples of all nations, and the, and, 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 the, uh, and, and, the, and the and the promise is low. I'm with you always, and I'm <laughs> said, I think it's just the opposite. I said, Jesus said, all authority and power has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. That's a promise. Disciples are going to be made of all the nations. The challenge is he's with me always. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, listen, sorry, that's, I interjected there. How did you go from, uh, and, and of course, in, in uh, the UK, you met your lovely British yeah. bride. Tell us about your family a little bit. Which family? Me, me. Yeah, you have a, your, your children uh, yeah. and your, your family. And- I, I, well, I've got, we, Elaine and I got six kids. We met at a Campus Crusade conference, and whenever I say that, I feel I have to issue a caveat because basically when <laughs> I first... Like Bill Gothard. Yeah, yeah. When, I went to, when I went to England, we had a group of guys that we used to meet on Friday nights at someone's home. And, and the guy who would led this, he was a, a, a WISA, a weapon systems officer on F4s. And uh, he was an, he and his wife were associate members of Campus Crusade, and they basically they had like a Friday evening fellowship that was you know we'd sing a few choruses and things like that, and maybe we'd do a Bible study and that kind of stuff. Well, because they were associate members of Campus Crusade, they would try to get the GIs that would go went to their house on Friday nights to go to like these conferences at British universities, and they asked me if I wanted to go. Now I'm 19, 20 years old at this particular point, and I'm going Christian conference college students, college girls. Of course I'm going, right? Because I'm, I'm, I've been a Christian for about a year and a half right? at that particular point. Not very sanctified at that particular point. So that was my whole idea of going to this Christian conference. I didn't realize that the British campus crusade is a little bit different than the Americans ones because they're British. They obviously have to do their, have to reinvent it and make it their own. But it's also, it's a very, much more of an intellectual kind of thing. And I remember, I mean, I went for the girls, but I stayed for the worldview because they introduced me to like Francis Schaeffer. They introduced me to Os Guinness. They introduced me to you know, various books that I had never even heard of before because I won't say that, that by the time I'd been a Christian for th- this, but I'm almost, almost about two years at this particular point, I'm not saying that I was losing my faith, but I certainly was losing my confidence that Christianity, you know, uh, I kept the questions that I, that I asked originally. I thought later on I'll get the answer. Instead, what I kept getting told was, "You got to accept that by faith. You got to accept that by faith. You got to accept that by faith." So much so that that I really wanted to punch people when they said that, because to me it was then and it is now an excuse for intellectual laziness. There are answers, and a lot of Christians didn't have them. Campus Crusade gave me access to the kinds of books to find those answers. And in the meantime, the very first day I was there, and it was in this this old English manor house, right? And I walked in the the foyer, and I saw this girl walking down these big, you know, divided spiral staircase, like something out of Tara and Gone with the Wind. And, you know, she was dressed in, like, this is 1974, right? So she's wearing a mid-length you know, skirt, you know, all the way down to her, you know, like her calf, right? And she's wearing riding boots, and, and she looked like she was a fine English lady ready to go riding to the hounds or something like that. And I thought, that is one beautiful girl. And that's exactly the kind of girl that I never had a shot with. And I could spend the next two hours talking about our courtship from that particular point on. But 
the point is that even though I went there and I did meet the woman who had become the love of my life and you know, the mother of my children, my best friend, etc., uh, it was the theology there that built upon the same thing that I had seen in the small group of navigators back at, you know, back in Texas, where basically, you know, their Christianity was real. But these guys began giving me the intellectual foundation to put these things together. How did you, uh, now you've been a pastor in various different, uh, well, first of all, let's, Let's talk about how you uh, your, your your initial forays into uh, faith for all of life, for what we call Christian reconstruction, and why you haven't used that term in two decades. Yeah. Well, the reality was when I finished seminary, uh, a couple of things happened to me. First of all, the last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. In fact, I've said for years the only reason why I'm a pastor is that's the only way God could get me to go to church every week. So, because I don't like what pastors do. In my mind, you know, what I was doing as a GI, as a you know junior enlisted guy in the Air Force, was a lot more kingdom worthy than what pastors did because we were sharing the gospel with people. We were nurturing new converts. You know, we were doing serious Bible study and churches didn't want to do any of that. But uh, I was kind of forced into, I went to, I went to get my degree in, uh, in psychology. I thought that would be a good thing to do because psychology is the one, one science, quote unquote, that doesn't have a heavy math requirement. By the time I had finished up my undergraduate work as a, as a psychology major, I said, there is no way I'm going through the rest of my life with this as my academic degree because psychology is a bankrupt discipline. It is just horrible, terrible. Uh, I then went on uh, and I finished up the requirement. I went to a Christian college. I then uh, finished off a, a Bible and theological studies uh, major as well, so I had a double major. And it was I was kind of forced almost into going to a seminary because Basically, I got, you know, I actually had a church approach me and asked me to be their assistant pastor in their ministry of youth and take out the garbage on Tuesdays, Brian kind of guy. Uh, but by the time I'd finished seminary, I thought, you guys, I'm sorry, I have nothing in common with you. You people are only here in seminary because you don't know where else you should be, right? That's it. You have no passion for the gospel. You have no understanding of a Christian worldview. Your Christianity is, is a thin veneer over pagan, basically pagan humanistic thinking. Uh, my, my, theology, uh, my theology, I should say my theolo theological education was not a very happy experience. But when I finished enough of this, I basically said, how did Christianity go from conquering the world in the first three centuries of the church how did Christianity go from standing up against the, the, the Roman Catholic Church and bringing about the Great Reformation? How did Christianity build America right into the nation that it was and, and come to this? How did these people here today that I see, how did they do these great things in history? And by that point, I'd already rejected dispensationalism as an answer, like the world is getting worse because Jesus is going to come soon. And that's a whole other 20-minute uh, discussion. I have your dog who's being very friendly, and he's listening to my voice, and he's, oh, I could use you on church on Sunday morning, because at least you sound interested. Yeah, you look interested. Anyway, and I thought, well, okay, I'm never going to get this in seminary, right? I need to stand outside of it. I need to do graduate work. I need to do my doctorate 
and I'm going to be clever on it because what I want to do is I don't want to be a psychologist and I don't want to be a pastor, but I can probably get myself a nice cushy job as a seminary professor somewhere if I get the right degree. So I won't do New Testament because you got to deal with form and redaction criticism and liberal theology. I won't do Old Testament because, you know, that's all documentary hypothesis and you know, all that kind of, you know, weird, you know, German liberal heresies from the 19th century. You got to run the gamut of that. No, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to pick an area that nobody has written much in. I'm going to work in sociology of religion because there's not a lot of work on that. And so basically, I, it's, it's almost a fresh field. Nobody's actually looking at the sociological influence of Christianity on culture. And because of my social science background, I've got a good introduction to those, you know, to the where to go to look do research. Because of my theology background, I've got a pretty good understanding of church history and that kind of stuff. And so I'll focus on some narrow aspect of Puritanism and how it influenced the development of distinctive American cultural values. One of the benefits of living in a foreign culture like Great Britain is that you get a chance to look at your own culture with new eyes you get to see yourself as other people do. And it's not always a very pleasant experience. But it also then allows you to be objective about some things. And of course, I was, if I went to an English university, I could live on the family farm in a house that they had available on the family farm rent-free, and I could use the last of my GI benefit bills to pay for tuition. And furthermore, it's only a three-year program to get your doctorate in a British university. And so what I did is that I applied, was accepted, and I went out and I bought every single book I could, because I'm going to England, I'm going to have a hard time getting access to American sources. I bought every single book I could find that dealt with uh, American, or theology and American history. And in amidst all these books that I bought, there was a bunch by this guy named R.J. Rushdoony. And I had no idea who Rushton he was. I, I thought he was some dead guy from, you know, 100 years ago or so, right? I mean, I, I'd never heard the name, never run across it. I didn't realize that he was, a, at that point, he was a living, breathing, you know, scholar in the full prime of his, you know, his maturity. But I bought everything that was available. And I packed them up into books. And because I had a friend that was still on overseas, I could send them all you know, through the APO, you know, address, you know, so basically paying American shipping rates to, you know, ship all my books, you know, overseas. And I started my studies at the university. And it's when I was starting to do all this study that I realized the reason why American Christians today couldn't do what our ancestors did, say, in 1630 or 1776 is because they don't believe the same things. They don't have the same religion that what most evangelical Christians accept as normal business as usual Christianity was is a creation of the 19th century. Kind of like how our Christmas celebration was a creation of the 19th century Victorians. Most people don't understand that. I preach about it every year at Christmas time. Just to let people know that Christmas trees and wreaths and cards and Coca-Cola and all that kind of stuff, it's all a creation of the Victorians. Nobody ever celebrated Christmas that way until about 1870 or 1880, right? In the same way, what most Christians practice in their churches has never been celebrated in the Christian church. It's not the same faith. Now that doesn't mean that all our brothers out there are, are, are heretics or are apostates or, or whatever. No, it means that they are malnourished, that, that they have been, their birthright has been stolen from them. They confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but they don't understand what that means. 
this historical perspective by focusing on the Puritans. And the Puritans, they get a lot of things right and they get a lot of things wrong. They, I mean, there's a lot to criticize there as well. But they had a basic fundamental orientation towards the Word of God and towards life. They really did believe that all of life belonged to King Jesus, that they had a moral, spiritual responsibility to subdue every aspect of life to King Jesus. And then when I came across Rush Dooney and Gary North and David Chilton and some of these other guys from the 70s and 80s, they basically took that same premise that I had discovered independently and they were showing me some of the implications. Now, I, I loved, you know, David Chilton's Rich Christians and Age of Guilt Manipulators, or Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. It's a response to Ron Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And basically... I hated that book, and, and that was the cutting-edge mark of discipleship at the college I went to. And I thought, this guy's a Marxist. This is not Christianity. And I remember, this is like 1970, 1979, somebody, when I was having a discussion with them and trying to show why you know, their beliefs were wrong, and they said, you, you sound like someone who would vote for Ronald Reagan. Now, I remember, I had just gotten back to the States, right? I'd been out of the country for a long time. The only thing I knew of Ronald Reagan was that he was a B-movie actor from the 40s and 50s, and he used to host, host Death Valley Tales, right? That we used to watch as a kid with, you know, 20 mule team borax kind of stuff. Now, Ronald Reagan, he's, he's an actor. I didn't even know who he was at that particular point. And I kind of laughed that off. But that was Christianity, operational Marxist. That's what they were thinking because nobody was giving them a biblical worldview. The Puritans had that. Gary North, R.J. Rushduni, David Chilton, you know, they were trying to work and develop that particular basis. And so as the 80s went on and I was doing my doctrinal studies in the sociology of religion, I realized that basically I have more in common with these guys than I do my local Southern Baptist pastor. Now, he's a guy, great guy. I love him. Has a pastor's heart. Don't have a bad thing to say about his, as a character, his, his commitment to Jesus Christ. But but Bill, I gotta tell you this is the truth. In those days, I was just pew fodder, right? I used to sit there and get preached to like everyone else. And a good sermon was one with no major heresies. If you could sit through an entire sermon and not say, oh boy, there's Sabellianism, there's modalism, oh man, he's just committed this, oh, you know, because he didn't know any better. No one had ever taught him any better. Uh, and sometimes they were real egregious. I mean, they were really bad, not from him, but sometimes from guest preachers. Yeah, and you know, the scary thing is, is that that's the type of Christianity that we've been exporting. Oh, yeah. You know, I had a Facebook uh, conversation last night with an African pastor. And in, the, and in this thread, it was a question, is this asking for a definition of sin? And, of course, I gave the standard Westminster Confession that, you know, any... <laughs> Uh, one of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And he said, behavior that annoys God. And I said, you think? Yeah. <laughs> you, you think God was annoyed? Yeah. He was annoyed so much by it that he wiped out the human race once yeah. and sent his son to... to yeah. You know, and, and I thought, man, yeah. this is... I said, that he believes that because we exported that gospel to them. In large yeah. measure, you know, it's it's. Uh, so, uh, one of the things we're going to get you to talk about now, you you obviously now you've you've uh, you've you've come through, uh, and God used all this in your life, the relationships, uh, your uh, your time uh, studying, 
now you have uh, become you've self-identified with these particular group of, of, of thinkers and writers, Chilton, maybe not so much Jordan, but you know, uh, but but I like Jim Jordan. I mean, I think he was a bit wacky in some of his stuff. They used to call him, uh, well, they used to call him speculative theology. Yeah. Jordan is what. Uh, Mike Chastain was telling me when he went back down there at Reformed. Oh, I used to say to Jim, what have you been smoking, dude? <laughs> I, I regular, We corresponded regularly, and i say, Jim, I just read this. I appreciate this, appreciate this. But, dude, what were you smoking when you wrote this? Because whatever it is, I want some of it because it sounds hey, like good stuff. I this question. You know, what's going around? All of us young neophytes, I mean, we're not, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're branding ourselves. We're self-identifying as Reconstructionists, but we don't, we don't really have the... We don't have the hash marks to show years in service. Uh, what do you think of Ray Sutton's five-point covenant model? I guess North makes a lot of it. Do you, do you... you know, I, it, it's like a lot of things. It's a paradigm. And paradigms are there as a way of trying to organize information. If it's helpful, adopt it. But what North was saying back in the 70s and 80s that this is going to revolutionize, you know, biblical theology, Gary North and hyperbole, those two things, you know, if you look up hyperbole in the, in the dictionary, there's a picture of Gary North. And, and, I, and I appreciate Gary North. I mean, I love his material. I mean, I love it, appreciate it tremendously. Uh, everyone should read Cross Fingers. If you're a Presbyterian, if you, haven't, if you want to know why your, your denomination is in risk of, of apostasy, read Cross Fingers, which is how the Northern Presbyterian Church was lost. It's history at its finest. Great stuff. I mean, I love Gary so don't get me wrong on this. I, I appreciate him so much. Uh, but he is, can be a bit hyperbolic at times. So, you know what? I, could, I can use the five-point covenant model. It's based upon Meredith Klein's work. Um... Meredith Klein, no friend of yeah, you know, but it's like, I think sometimes, and I'm not saying Ray Sutton was guilty of this, I'm not saying Gary North was guilty of it, I don't know. But as an outsider on some of these issues, when I looked at it, it's like, sometimes people are looking for the next big thing. They want to have this great paradigm, they want to have this great idea, and the issue is, does it stand the test of time? And... I don't know. I mean, As post-millennialists, are they sort of set up to think that way? They, they're, they, there's going there's to be some new tool of dominion or some new slant on biblical truth that's going to propel us to the next level? Yeah, and there's a little bit of apocalyptic thinking in Dr. North that has always been there. I, in fact, my one claim to fame, I mean, I worked for R.J. Rush Jr. for 15 years. I, I love the man. I consider him a spiritual father. Uh, his passing was, was the loss um, he was the independent reader in my doctoral dissertation, and that's how he got me to work for him for Calcedon. I was on the board for a number of years. I, I mean, I really appreciate him. But, you know, Dr. North, I just thought was, he's more like my personality-wise. But my one claim to fame is that, that I wrote a little article for our church newsletter, and basically I had two columns left to fill, right? And that's all it was. And there was probably about 300 people on the mailing list. And I needed to write something to fill that space because I didn't want to have an empty space. And basically, someone said, why don't you write something about Y2K? And I went, oh, okay. And I wrote this little thing. You know, again, it was probably 300 words, 500 words, and basically went through and said, you know, you know Gary North is really pushing this thing. And I said, um, guys, let's, let's put this into perspective. Dr. North has been predicting disaster, right? You know, and it's never come true. 
just because he believes it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. But, but the reality was is that I got a, 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 a thing in the mail that basically said it was for the, to subscribe to the Remnant Review. And the issue that they gave me said, the top 10 stock tips for post Y2K. Now, if you followed Gary North's theory of what was going to happen at Y2K, it was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. You know, planes were going to fall out of the skies. People are going to be starving. Rampaging hordes of cannibalistic zombies are going to be running across the landscape, you know. The stock market isn't going to exist. So why would you invest in a stock market that's going to cease to exist when the computers go down, the electricity shuts off? And that said, okay, somebody is playing games somewhere. So I wrote this little article. Gary Worth went ballistic on me. You know, he just really meant, ah, you know, this is gunfight at the Y2K Corral. You know, this young punk wants to wants to meet me. Well, I'm going to put him in his place. I thought, but I, I said, that's my one claim to fame is that I got Gary North mad enough that he actually wrote an article about me. Even though he called me by my brother's name rather than... Yeah, you and Paul Hill. Yeah. Paul Hill had killed <laughs> Yeah. So, but, I mean, but saying that, Gary North is a great blessing. This guy has done more. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. You know, yeah. and the only, my only real... And the word curmudgeon was invented yeah. for Gary North, wasn't it? Yeah. But the real big problem, your dog is getting friendly. The real, only real problem I had with Gary North is that, and, and, and if he ever listens to this, Gary, you need to hear this from someone who loves you. Go back to printing real books. And he calls that the Picard syndrome, this idea that the internet is the future and I'm gonna put my material in there where it's gonna be there forever and, and books are obsolete. We are not at that stage yet where computer technology is easy and accessible enough you know, that, that it replaces having a book in your hand. And it's not just some melancholic, romantic, nostalgic thing. You know, it's kind of hard to take your laptop into the bathroom, you know. Well, now you realize you are on Reconstruction yes. Radio where we have basically taken these libraries. Exactly. And, and, and it's in a format now where you can put it on a little bitty tiny chip and our people can download them anywhere in the world. I, so but, you're on and I, I think that's brilliant. This, this, is the, this is the great <laughs> thing to do. But you can read five times faster than you can hear. So if you give me a, an audio lecture, and if I, I do this all the time when I'm looking on YouTube and I'm looking at people's sermons and things like that, I have to put the speed up to 1.5, which makes them sound like you know uh, Mickey Mouse on helium, uh, because otherwise it gets it's so slow. Your brain works faster than your ears do, and you can read so much faster than. So you've got to have a format. I mean, and again, if you're going to be like you, you're a long haul trucker, right? Okay, having something talking audible in the background is a brilliant way to use your time during and the day. People have commutes. And people have commutes. Yeah, my commute is from the bathroom into my office to the kitchen. It's right. you know, so it's and uh, uh, it's terrible because I'll be I'll have uh, James White uh, from uh, Alpha and Omega Ministries, a great guy, you know, Reformed Baptist, really appreciate his stuff. I'll have his lecture. I'll have one of his you know Vitamin Line programs on. And then at the same time, I've got two other articles open that I'm reading, <laughs> you know, because it, even me, you know, it's like, okay, Jim, you're you're too slow, you know, you need I, I need to have you know a faster, but that's my personal personal thing. So so you uh, worked uh, far, uh, rushed any for 15 years. You were a writer for Calcedon. Calcedon, yep. And what else have you done? Raised six kids. 
Racist kid, you've pastored, and you've been a pastor. Oh, since 1985. And and and. And I've been run out of more churches than. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of like a badge of honor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You well, are, I started off as a Baptist because that's what you. I mean, that basically default, right? Right. And again, most of the Calvinists I met were obnoxious. But as time went on, as I was doing my doctoral studies, and I wanted to see what happened in America, I could see that Calvinism was a major contributing factor to why we became the nation that we were. Everything good about us can be traced back to these Calvinist presuppositions of the, 50, I should say, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And so that kind of predisposed me. But philosophically and theologically, I wasn't a Calvinist, see, because I didn't like it. Calvinism offended me. It made my God seem cruel and, and, and capricious and arbitrary not and unfair. Not just Calvinists that offend you. Yeah, it's not just Calvinists, but it was the Calvinism. <laughs> but yeah, okay. But then I remember this happening because as I was working my doctorate, I did was had this uh, Friday evening fellowship at the very same military base that I'd been at when I was on active duty, right? But now it was, you know, I was actually as a director of a Christian servicing center, and I would teach my guys... Bible study methods, and I was doing something a little bit more complicated than what the uh, the navigators it did, you know, for me ten years previously. And I was trying to teach them how to actually exegete a passage of scripture. And I like to think that compared to the guys I went to seminary with, these guys did better Bible study in order to analyzing the language, presuppositions, uh, prepositions, syntax, grammar, all that kind of stuff. They didn't have Greek or Hebrew, but they were doing very good with their English Bibles. But the one thing I told them is let the text be the text. If you come across a text of scripture and it doesn't agree with your theology, put your theology aside. Let the text speak for itself because the most common way that Christians, in my experience in Bible study, was free association. They only found from the text what they wanted to find, what already confirmed their belief. And to me, that was blasphemous. You need to have the text of scripture change you not you change the text to fit your preconceived ideas. Sort of in that vein too, I just posted a, uh, an audio lecture by uh, Robert Rayburn on dialectic and tension in scripture and why we tend to, Calvinists and Armenians both tend to play to our strong hand. We see election and, and, and we see it everywhere. We even see it in verses where it's not being taught. Uh, and that he said you need to let the scripture say exactly what it says. Uh, it says, by the works of the law shall no man be justified, and also says faith without works is dead. It's the same author. Yeah. And so you have to grapple with those. Of course, I remember as a young nav, uh, Walt Henderson book on hermeneutics, the only book on hermeneutics I've ever read, and I, I just remember that one, that one tenet, believe it or not. I do, I, yes, folks, you can host a Christian podcast and never have read a book on hermeneutics uh, but it was when two passages of scripture appear to contradict accept them both as true mm -hmm. with the uh, from from the perspective that they reconcile themselves at a higher truth or a higher level or something that thing so that idea of, of dialectic and you know it is a, a particular aspect or characteristic of People who self-identify as, you know, there's various different gradations. I mean, people who are Calvinists think they're Reformed. And people who are Reformed Presbyterians say, no, you're not really Reformed, you're a Calvinist. And then people who are 
you know, I used to think that TR stood for truly reformed. I think now it stands for truly reconstruction. <laughs> and, and, and so we tend to, well, you believe in five points. Well, I believe in 10 points. You know, uh, we, we all tend to, we have better arguments than the other guys. And, and we tend to treat other guys like our, our goal is to win the argument, not to really build bridges, not to really bring people along not to nurture people, not to affirm people, certainly not to consider others as more important than themselves. And so what I'm, I, what I, and, and it pains me to say this, but to, to, a good, to a good extent, and maybe you have to have gone through what we went through to see this, but I, I think that I really, Christian Reconstructionists that I know, some of them are, have got really good answers to really tough questions, and um, they see things in Bible in the Bible that I am not yet smart enough to see. But they do a real bad impersonation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Bill, I think Reformed Christians, Reconstructionist Christians, sometimes forget that there are sins of the intellect as well as sins of the flesh. We're very good at pointing out that sodomy, that, 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 that fornication, adultery, that you know, abortion, that these are horrible, terrible sins and that they need to be repented of and we need to preach and be prophetic against them. But the scriptures also say, you know, 1 Corinthians 8.1, we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There are sins of the intellect, and we pride, arrogance, wanting to be on top. And I think that's one of the big issues here, is that we don't let our pride get humbled. Uh, a good mark. If you want to um, get, a, get a feel, I think, in my experience, of where a man is at in his relationship with God, really, really coming from, look at how he handles conflict. Look at how he handles when someone disagrees with him. Proverbs is very clear. We were talking about this before the podcast began, you know. Rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. And as you pointed out wisely, he may not always agree with you, but he'll love you even though you disagree with him because you rebuke him. But if you rebuke a fool, he'll hate you. And watch what happens. Watch how people's feelings get hurt and they get whiny and complaining and they get self-justifying and they have to go on full-on attack mode because someone said something or, or, or treated them, didn't treat them the way they wanted to be treated. That's all symptomatic of their ego being bruised, their pride being hurt. Pride is one of those big sins, you know? It's the one that you know, basically Lucifer fell to. It's the one that caused Adam and Eve to, you know, to bring about God's curse because they wanted to be as God. It's the one thing that, that, that is basically reprehensible that we all supposed to recognize, but we recognize it in someone else, but we're not so good at recognizing it in ourselves. You see, I gotta admit, one final comment. I can talk about this because I'm a humble guy. And it's easy for me to be humble because I've got so much to be humble about. So, you know, it's kind of like my perspective. I've never been wealthy or powerful or noble or, you know, I don't have, my degree eventually came from such a really fifth-rate university. I didn't even want to mention where it came from. It's, you know, it's not a diploma mill, but it's not too far up the line from there. I mean, we can see diploma mills from where, you know, from our hall. 
because you know basically I wasn't smart enough to get through the I wouldn't to get through the uh, British uh, educational system you know with my presuppositions not being spotted I thought by maybe them. you went to Oxford or Cambridge and they just uh, they, they gave you your degree under the proviso that you never mentioned yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, well one of my guests uh, pointed out that the that the the uh, works of the flesh are almost all having to do with relation or side of the break with part two of our interview with Brian Abshire. How much time? To my listeners, and as uh, from an, an elder brother uh, who's walked among, we would say giants in our mind, uh, but to give make observations and to give us some helpful warnings for those who are just now providentially have been stumbled into the you know. Calvinistic soteriology and covenantal theology and presuppositional apologetics and postmillennial eschatology and theonomy, and you're enamored with it. Uh, what are some things to be on the lookout? Uh, and I'm so I'm just going to let Brian sort of um, go off and follow, you know, whatever his uh, free flow stream of consciousness takes us. And he'll address these issues for about the next 15 minutes or so, and I'll just and I'll try to do a minimum of, of inject, injection here. So, Brian. Okay. Well, let's go back just for a second. It's, again, tying in personal experience with the broader question that you're talking about, I had to make a slight clarification during the 1980s, which you know, basically the highlight of of what we would call Christian Reconstruction when it was bursting on the scene when it when the big conference where the journal of christian reconstruction was coming out and there were all these i was not physically here in the states i was in england working on my doctorate what i was doing is i was buying all the books so i was really in the similar situation to what a lot of your listeners probably are in where my understanding my my interaction it didn't come from conferences where i was there or churches that were teaching the right thing but rather by reading all this great material and it was only when i came back to the states and i went to work for rush dooney that i actually began actually interacting with these various things and at conferences and you know, uh, you know book publication schedules and you know personal meetings with individuals across the country that my personal experience caught up with my academic one and that's where the fatal flaw of Reformed theology comes into play. And because Reconstructionism, I think, is a necessary child of the Reformed faith, uh, it's a legitimate child of the Reformed faith, it also suffers from the same problem. And that is, is that in many respects, we are children of the Enlightenment. We have this fundamental belief, this presupposition, that we need to have the right ideas first. That if we get the right ideas, then everything else will flow logically. And I think it's a fatal flaw because it's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of total depravity. Total depravity, as every reformed person knows, doesn't mean that men are all totally depraved as far as they can be, but it rather means that sin affects the totality of our being. I did a master's thesis on presuppositional apologetics and the use of evidence in it. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is a whole chapter in the dissertation that deals with what's called the noetic effect of sin. 
And what does the Bible say that, that sin has an effect on not just our bodies and not just our wills, but it also affects our thinking? You can see that very clearly in Romans 1, 18 and following, where professing to become wise, they became fools, etc. And it's a very fundamental pr uh, prospect of Reformed theology is that sin affects not just our wills or our bodies, but it affects our ability to think. Now, a lot of Reformed people will say, yeah, of course, I agree with that. That's self-evident. That's obvious except they don't think it affects them. They think their thinking is good. They think their reasoning is good. They think they're, you know, and therefore if they can sharpen each other, then that's why a lot of Reformed Christians, a lot of Calvinists go running around and they've got their little doctrinal questionnaire here and they'll go down the list of all the doctrines and they can only have fellowship with you if your doctrine matches up precisely with theirs. Back in the old days, before computers were nice and nifty, there were these things called punch cards. And the way you programmed a computer is by having a little rectangular card and you punched little physical holes in it and a card reader would then, you know, look at where the holes were by shining a light through it and it would therefore be able to, you know, program the machine that way. And Christians walk around, a lot of Reformed Christians, looking at other people's punch cards, which that was a much better illustration 30 years ago. That's, that's how you know, Bill, you're getting old. When your pop culture references are now considered classics, right? So nobody even knows what a punch card is. But the fact is, they think that they need to have their theology immaculate. A statement that uh, Rush Dooney once made that I thought was incredibly profound. He was talking about the wonders of the Salvation Army and how they are doing the work of Christian Reconstruction. If you don't know Salvation Army people, they're Arminian. They are not reformed at all. And yet Rush Dooney could look at them proudly and the work they do with charity and ministering and things like that and, and include them within you know, his camp, his family of Christian Reconstructionists, even though their theology wasn't always what it should be or could be or what we would want to see it to be. And yet he recognized them as being true brothers in the faith despite the differences in their theology. That's one of the things that we have to deal with. It is our pride and our arrogance that gets in the way of seeing the next phase of God's great work. We think everyone's got to think like us, attend our conferences, believe like us, and if they don't, then we don't want to have fellowship with them, we don't want to deal with them, we don't want to support them. I think that's a fatal flaw. I think that's what basically has shipwrecked us. As, and I think that's something we're going to need to get over because the real emphasis on Christianity is learning to bring every area of life into submission to King Jesus. So, and, and again, the, fatal, the other fatal flaw in terms of that is that what happens then when you disagree with your brother, when you have conflict? The difference between a friend and an acquaintance is that a friend, you've gone through a conflict and you've resolved it. An acquaintance, you've had a conflict and you just keep him at arm's length. And learning how to deal with conflicts biblically, learning how to resolve our differences, learning how to recognize, you know what, my brother here, I, I, don't, I don't agree with him on this. I don't like what he does there. I, don't, I think he's got it wrong there. But still recognizing him as a brother, as someone to support, to encourage, to pray for, to fellowship with. And then when you have a problem, you recognize, you know, James says it this way, confess your sins one to another. Let me ask you a question, Bill. Let me ask the audience. When's the last time another Christian has come up to you and said, hey, I got some sins I need to confess. Will you hear them? I'm not talking about confession in the sense of the Roman Catholic priest list. I mean being vulnerable and open and recognizing that we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. 
Christians will all agree, yeah, we're sinners, until you point out one specific way in which they're sinning on that particular instance, and then you become their worst enemy. They can't handle conflict. They can't handle a, a confrontation. They can't handle being confronted with what they say they already acknowledge to be true. And until we learn to be vulnerable, and by the way, I'm not slamming people for doing that because that's a self-defense mechanism. The first thing that I learned as a pastor is don't ever be vulnerable to anyone in your congregation. Now, my pastors, my, my seminary professors had tried to warn me about this, and I didn't, I poo-pooed it, right, because I thought I knew better. But the reality is, is that the average person has learned, the average Christian has learned, that if you're vulnerable, if you're open, if you admit to mistakes, to frailties, to follies, to foibles, to sins, that your brothers are going to use that against you. They'll slander you. They'll gossip behind your back. And when you get in a conflict with them on something that may be on an intellectual thing or whatever, then they'll turn around and use that confession or that weakness or that admission to basically stab you in the back. Someone said years ago that Christians are the only ones on earth who eat their own wounded, right? We don't deal with the wounded. We kill them. We murder them. And until we learn to deal with that, because we think that ideas are all that's important. Well, ideas are important. There's no doubt about that. But it's not all that's important. That's why I keep quoting 1 Corinthians 8, 1, where it says, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Until Christians learn that, we're not going to see Christian civilization spread. One of the best received uh, interviews that I've done was with a guy, uh, with a young man named Michael Minkoff, who's the president of the Nehemiah Foundation. He, he, he grew up in a reformed congregation, probably the preeminent Reformed congregation in America. And he made reference to um, incarnational truth versus expositional truth. And how people are wired differently and some people feel truth and some people think truth. And, and, and there's something of that. You know, I, it occurred to me when we hear the term in, in common, let's say political discussion, we might hear of it, we need to be a big tent party. Well, we, we typically tend to think that means, well, we need to allow the the sodomites and the, the peaceniks and the this, you know, all these different people of, of, of background, backgrounds that really don't have much in common, but we need to appeal to all of them by, uh, you know, the lowest common denominator. We dumb down our message to the point that anybody can agree with us and join our party. But in, in a proper sense, it does seem, you know, Scripture says, uh, talks about those who are spiritual. You know, if a brother is taken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you be to be tempted. That's a, a spiritual man is a man who n knows what he believes, knows whom he has believed in, knows the promises of God, understands the mission of the Holy Spirit and and, 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 and and is not threatened by people who are weaker in faith and who maybe have stupid ideas and do stupid things. It seems to me that if we're spiritual men, then we ought to be the, the peacemakers. We ought to be the reconcilers. We ought to be the restorers. We ought to be running the hospital. We, when people get beat up and they get in their um, 
casualties of war, they ought to be going to the spiritual men to get patched up, encouraged, loved on, equipped and sent back out, armed with new weapons, better weapons, better skills. And yet we, we don't. It's like we're Pharisees. That is a real issue. That's, I think, one of the reasons why we're not seeing God's grace and mercy and his providential care. We've got an election coming up, right? This is probably the worst election in American history from my perspective. I get in trouble for saying this, but there, there is no good candidate to vote for. I mean, literally, it is the, it is the lesser of two evils. I mean, and, and uh, I mean, I'm sorry, this is, not, this is a very scary time. I thought it was bad, you know, when Clinton was running, the first time, you know, the original Clinton was running. Uh, this is like 10 times worse. This is a scary time. Why is God doing this to us? Why is God allowing this to happen? It's not because the Lord Jesus is going to come back next week and he's going to rapture us out of it. It's because the church, what are you doing there, fellow? That's the dog. It's because the church is failing to act the way they're supposed to act. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We're not learning how to be iron sharpening iron. We're not letting the word of Christ richly deal with us as we teach and come. We're playing games. We want to promote ourselves. We want to get advancement. We want to, uh, uh, you know, get control, you know, organizations. There's a, a brilliant comment that Gary North, Lord bless him, I, again, I, I really appreciate him so much. He made years ago in one of his books, he says, wherever wealth and power are concentrated, basically I'm paraphrasing him, people who are motivated by wealth and power are going to seek to control them. And what do we Christians do? We keep building these big organizations, these big institutions, and in 20 or 30 years, the liberals come along, you know, and they, they take over the organization. I don't think the present problem, the, the present uh, situation with, amongst those who call themselves Reconstructionists is a judgment of God. I think it's actually our greatest strength. It's a dispersed movement. It's men out there working in the trenches day by day. Can we cooperate more? Sure. Can we connect with one another? Yeah. But say we got together a great reconstructionist organization. We got millions of dollars invested in, in fighting, you know, Planned Parenthood and, and protesting abortion and, 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 and de-establishing Christian schools and, and getting political leverage and power. Within a couple of years, that thing would be like flies coming to honey, where, where people who just wanted the wealth and the power would try to take over that organization, and all of a sudden, it would become something altogether different than what we'd ever intended. Before we uh, wrap it up for today, I want to give you a chance to recommend a few things for us, recommend some things that we should read. You, we mentioned in our off-mic time, uh, a couple of, of, of things and also I'd like to give you a chance to tell us about what you're doing uh, what you're planning to do on YouTube uh, because you're a great writer uh, you, you're on and also give your website for your for uh, Covenant Presbyterian uh, Reformed Presbyterian because there's a lot of things that you've written done on there but you're you're planning on sort of coming out of your seclusion somewhat and taking advantage of some of the tools of dominion to 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 speak to 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 us take the last five minutes here just to give us some some reading recommendations or some things that you think we should pay attention to and um, 
what, what you're going to be doing soon and, and, and how people can uh, connect with either uh, the church that you're pastoring or your writings on, the, on your church website. The author who actually was used by God to change my life originally was a man named Francis Schaeffer, who's now he's a classic scholar. I didn't know at the time that Francis Schaeffer wrote his books because he was receiving audio tapes of R.J. Rushdoony back in the 1960s. He was listening to Rushdoony's lectures and used them as the foundation to write his famous books. He is there and he is not silent. The God who is there and Escape from Reason. Those are all basically repackaged versions of Rushdoony's lectures. So don't go through. Schaefer's still good. Read Schaefer if you want. But get the original. I cannot highly recommend R.J. Rushdoony. Uh, I cannot more highly recommend him. His books, uh, you know, Nature of the American City, uh, the Nature of the American System, uh, you know, the, and obviously the Institutes of Biblical Law. All of these things are tremendous books that are are well worth your time and attention. They are good quality. They feed your soul as well as your mind. So even though Rush Juni has been gone for a number of years. Um, I still, at every, at every opportunity, I'm putting his books into the hands of people that I think, you know, are ready to, for actually some meat from Christianity. Because he predicted everything we're facing today back in the 1960s. If you want to read The Nature of the American System or, or these other books that he wrote back in the 60s, he saw where we were going. He predicted it, and he also gives us the answer. Now, you don't always agree, have to agree with Rush Judy. I never agreed with his view on the dietary laws, for example. I thought he was weak in a couple of areas. But... You know that's a gnat, right? You know, you know, basically, it's it's they're just not significant issues. So if you haven't discovered Rush Dooney, don't just read him from quotations. Go back. Get his, his son Mark is doing a phenomenal job keeping Rush's works in print. So go there, buy everything Rush Dooney ever wrote, and make it a part of your library. And you will always find something there for your soul. If I have any contribution to make to the world. Apart from you know my children, which I think is that's my real legacy. But if I have any contribution, it's taking some of the things that Rush wrote about and maybe unpacking them a little bit, and then using my quirky, stupid sense of humor to make it you know acceptable or or, or approachable to people who might not actually want to read Rush. But go back to the source; he's fantastic. Um, you also mentioned cross fingers. Yeah, Gary North's book. If you want to understand why your Presbyterian church is in trouble. Read Crossed Fingers. Now that's basically, it's a history of what happened in the, to J. Gresham Machen and why the Northern Presbyterian Church became bankrupt. And basically his thesis is that both sides, when they took their oaths, were crossing their fingers. And that's why the book is, in other words, they, the Presbyterian Church has very serious oaths that you take before you become a teaching or a ruling elder. And what was happening on both sides, the liberals and the evangelicals, the liberals were crossing their fingers on the authority of Scripture and the deity of Christ, but they were conspired with the evangelicals who had rejected Calvinism. And so both sides wanted the pomp, the, the prestige, the power, the, you know, the money that was in the Presbyterian church. Remember, in those days, sermons from Presbyterian pastors were front page, Monday morning front page headlines. You know, they, the goings-on of the Presbyterian church with Jacob Mission was, was, you know, people bought newspapers to read about what was going on. Think about that today where the Presbyterian church is largely bankrupt. But it explains why we need to have a better understanding, a better integrity in terms of oaths. If you want to understand why there are problems in the OPC or the PCA, 
read Crossed Fingers. It's basically, it's, it's the handbook for why those churches are having the difficulties and the trials they are. And I'm not trying to say bad things about the OPC or PCA. A lot of good men there. Praise God. Please bless them. I'm not in them. I don't have any association with them anymore. They don't want to have association with me. It's a it's a mutual kind of decision here. So you want to promote uh, uh, you you co-authored a book with Peter Hammond. We've talked about it several times off off mic. You want to go ahead and uh, Peter came up with this idea a number of years ago called Character Assassins because basically Peter and myself have gone through some tough times. And in fact, I'm going to put it this way: uh, if you really you're not anyone in the Christian world unless you have been persecuted by other Christians. And you go, you can go all the way back to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is excommunicated and murdered by the church of his day, the Sanhedrin, to the Apostle Paul, Stephen the Martyr, all of the, the early apostles. If you actually follow down the history of great Christian men, you'll find that almost invariably they were persecuted not just by the outside world, but often by a conspiracy between the world and the institutional church at the time. Now we need to give a caveat to some of our listeners in the war room uh, audience. Yes. That does not mean that if you've been excommunicated, Jerry. <laughs> no, because a lot of people are righteously excommunicated. But, I, but to tell you the truth, I served on the, uh, the uh, Records and Review Committee at the General Assembly of a large Presbyterian denomination, which shall remain nameless, for a number of years. And my job was to review court cases. And I would say that 90% that of the time, the court cases were bankrupt, that these were horrible perversions of justice. And basically what it came down to is that so-and-so disagreed with elder so-and-so, right? They had a disagreement about something. And so they charged him and they basically used the church courts to prosecute someone that hadn't really done anything wrong. The number, and that's why my part of the book is called Ecclesiastical Malfeasance. It deals with how do you actually adjudicate problems biblically? Peter's part is basically, it's brilliant, great stuff. And, and it's how these men manipulate and control. And again, in my opinion, it's a good reason why you don't let power and money flow into the local church. That is, if the church becomes successful, it becomes wealthy, it becomes powerful, then people who are motivated by wealth and power are going to seek to control it. And so a lot of the times, with the men that we're talking about are not men who have been disciplined for theological error or moral turpitude or something like that. They're basically disciplined because somebody wants to destroy their ministry so they can have the wealth and power that that ministry represents. Very, very good book. Highly recommend it. It's something that, um, it's almost a, a textbook that you can use how to avoid this kind of stuff and how to recognize it when you see it's happening. Is it available uh, on Amazon or is it available from Frontline Fellowship? It's available from Frontline Fellowship and I I, I had copies of it years ago. I had a 500 copies or so, but I think I've either given them, I think I gave most of them away. Some of them, I have to admit, Bill, I sent uh, under a plain brown wrapper to certain individuals without telling them where it came from because, <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted them to get the message and not make it too pointed. But yeah, this is an important book. And uh, if nothing else, go to Frontline Fellowship. I think it's .org.za right. for South Africa, right. and you can find it. So. Right. Now you also are going to. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, are you ready to 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 announce anything about what you've yeah. got planned? For Look, you? I've got Bill. Honestly, I've got nothing planned because when Rush Dooney died, the problems that I saw in the Reform community, the problems I saw in the Reconstructionist community, weren't going to be solved by me standing behind a lectern somewhere in some strange city, 
you know, dazzling people with my anecdotes and stories and my wisdom and my charming personality. Real change, I think, comes about when you invest yourself in someone else's life. That's what the navigators taught us all those years ago. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that one-on-one thing. So I decided I was focused on being a pastor, and that's what I've been doing for the last 16 years. I just want to help dads love their wives, you know, and, and moms and dads love their kids, and, you know, kids to, you know, respect their parents and that kind of stuff. But now so that we you, have... If, you've called, if God's called you to be a pastor, don't shrivel up to be a keynote speaker? Yeah, basically. And it's a lot harder work because it means getting involved in the nitty-gritty of people's lives. However, uh, I have a small church, but it's probably the best church I've ever pastored. I love these people, and they... And after three years, they still love me. That's almost a record in my book. So if you're anywhere in, you know, in the Midwest, you're transiting. Uh, they took in, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proof that they have a homeless ministry. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church yes. in Evansville. Yeah, and it's covenant-reform.org on the, on the, on the web. And because we we have uh, our church is kind of spread out, you know, the people are from a you know wide variety. We're doing the thing now, which is available to everyone. We do uh, at least once a week. We've got like about a half hour to forty five minute lecture on various topics. We we dealt with covenant baptism. Those are up on YouTube right now. We're doing a new series called it's called Burn the Heretic Pastor, by the way. And uh, and the next one is how Christians can conquer the world in ten easy steps. And uh, and basically, all of the stuff that we're talking about here are kinds of some of the issues that we're looking at in more detail from historical, theological, particular perspective. It basically gives me a chance to go jousting at every windmill that I come across. So it's a lot of fun. Well, hopefully you can, you, uh, some of the literature I've left you here, and I'm going to fetch you some more. Uh, you, you, after you've had a chance to prove it, you can tell us how we can end child sacrifice in 10 easy steps. Because that should be a walk in the park compared to winning the world, right? Yeah, but you got to understand that that the child sacrifice, I'm going to offend some of my brothers when I say this. Okay, you're going to want to burn me now. That's not the problem. No, it's the That's world, the symptom. The worldview that makes it even... Yeah. Re, uh, yeah, that is the worldview. We understand that, and, and all my AHA friends understand that too, that, well, that the real issue is the worldview that makes child sacrifice... Possible, and I really appreciate what Gary North said. And, I, and he gets these—I I spit this out every couple of podcasts—is that he said the problem is not abortion. The problem is we have a government that sanctions it and a culture that demands it. And I want to say this for all of my pro-life brothers out there—the ones on the front lines, the ones that you know—I love you and I appreciate you, but. That's the symptom, not the problem. And if we we faced it in the past, if you want to know how to conquer abortion, look at what we did the first time. When we dealt with infanticide in the Roman Empire, we wiped it out, didn't we? How many people chained themselves? How many protests were held? You know, how did we do that? If you can answer that question, you'll know how we can do it again. It's interesting. Well, we surely appreciate this time we've had a chance to spend with you. Brian Abshire, and folks, thank you for listening to us here on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage?